0: Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. We're your hosts, Cassie and Kendall. We wanted to provide a
1: content warning for today's episode. We are going to be talking about suicidal thoughts. If you or someone you love is dealing with a crisis right now, please call 1-800-273-8255 to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Our guest today is Dr. Katherine Hope Gordon, a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy. Prior to working as a therapist, Gordon was a professor for 10 years. She is a mental health researcher who has published more than 80 scientific articles and book chapters on suicidal behavior, disordered eating, and related topics. Gordon co-hosts the Psychodrama podcast, blogs for Psychology Today, and shares mental health information through her website at www.catherinehgordon.com. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much for joining us for this really important conversation.
0: Thanks so much for inviting me on today. I appreciate the opportunity. So we wanted to start out this conversation by defining suicidal thoughts and then talking about some of the reasons why people might have them.
2: Absolutely. So suicidal thoughts kind of broadly defined are when people have some desire for death. And so that can look like more passive types of suicidal thoughts where they might wish that they didn't wake up in the morning but they're not thinking of hurting themselves and that can kind of range all the way up to people who are planning about how they might take their own lives and the reason that people typically have them is that they're experiencing some kind of great pain emotional psychological or physical pain and or physical pain in their lives and they're having a hard time seeing a way to soothe or alleviate that pain other than by dying and and that's really sad when someone gets to that point but that is often what people report when when they're starting to have suicidal thoughts
1: so um, I think one thing that is really important to note is this is something that's super stigmatized and I wonder if you can talk about maybe why that is and why you know figure out how to phrase this like when people vocalize it some people don't take that seriously um, and you know sometimes, People might uh, go at it like saying you're seeking attention or it's just very stigmatized. And, and sometimes it feels it's not taken seriously. And I wanted to, wanted to know your thoughts on that.
2: I think that understandably, a lot of people feel anxious and uneasy thinking about someone feeling suicidal. They might not know how to help. It might be too scary for them to think about someone they care about actually wishing they were dead. And so I think that all of that can kind of contribute to wanting to avoid thinking about it or believing it to be true or dealing with it. And I think that that is a lot of what contributes to the stigma as well as historically within um, some culturally, and and then some religious groups believing that suicide is a sin. And, and so a lot of those things kind of get passed on and carry on. I think the stigma has decreased quite substantially in the United States in the last several years. And I think a lot of that is due to more people being open about the fact that they experience suicidal thoughts, how common they are, and that there are effective ways to cope with them. But still, I, I think that 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 fear and some of the beliefs surrounding it connecting suicide to sin can continue to kind of filter down and affect people's views. I think
0: what with what you're saying with um, destigmatizing suicide, um, at least in the United States, I feel like I hear a lot of that when it comes to um, even the phrasing of how we talk about when someone dies by suicide versus committed uh, suicide, which is language that we have heard for a very long time. Um, So that does feel like progress in that respect. I wanted to go back because you said something that really um, was a light bulb moment for me with suicidal thoughts in your first question, that it's not just about, the thoughts aren't just about wanting to harm yourself, it's about not wanting to be alive. Um, And I think a lot of people immediately go to the thought that if you're having suicidal thoughts, you're thinking about harming yourself, but it's more complex than that, and I wanted to talk about the different types of suicidal thoughts and behaviors um, that that you see or that you're aware of.
2: Sure. So, with regard to suicidal thoughts, sometimes called suicidal ideation, we really see this large spectrum. And as I mentioned, there might be people who are kind of they they might have a thought fleeting that passes through their mind that they'd like if they got into a car accident, but they're not actively trying to make that happen. There can be people who have thoughts just when they're feeling quite depressed and it kind of pops into their mind, but they don't really think that they'd act on it. And then there are people who, and these can be the same people at different points in their lives too, having different types of thoughts. And there can be people who are getting to the point where they're thinking about it quite intensely a lot of the time and thinking about detailed plans for how they might die by suicide. When someone is having any thoughts with some desire for death connected to it, they typically fall under that umbrella of suicidal thoughts. A suicide attempt is when someone has any kind of non-fatal, potentially self-injurious act with some intent to die. So even if the method that they use isn't particularly lethal. If there was some attempt or desire to die as, as a result, that's considered a suicide attempt. And then there's non-suicidal self-injury, which is when someone is intentionally damaging body tissue, often by cutting or burning themselves, and they don't have any desire for death as a result. And so that typically what people say is it's to relieve pain or there are other, sometimes it's to communicate something or there are other functions, but the main one that research has found is trying to have some relief from from negative emotions.
1: So earlier you mentioned that, you know, suicidal thoughts stem from this like deep emotional pain. Um, If you're somebody who maybe has just started having these types of thoughts and they sort of feel like they came out of nowhere, how can you sort of identify like the root cause or like the trigger or sort of the origin of these thoughts and what the underlying um, issues might be?
2: It's a great question. I think sometimes it can feel hard to pinpoint exactly what the, the source of it is. And so sometimes it can be helpful to talk to a therapist or to talk to a loved one or friend, because it can feel like sometimes they have a bigger picture and they can zoom out a little bit and say, well, I noticed it was around the time that winter started, or I noticed it was around the time when you got ill or, or you and this friend had a conflict and and can kind of point to some of those sources. And you don't necessarily need to know exactly what it is to try to find things that make things better. But I do think it helps to try to find a pathway forward. And so if, if you're feeling really stuck, then I do recommend talking to someone who knows you pretty well, who can kind of help you sort through that and and kind of pick apart the different things that led up to it
0: as we talk about um seeking out help which we're going to get to later in this conversation but just as a follow up to that when you're having a conversation with a therapist in most therapy sessions or if not all of them you're getting the language right off the bat that if you're if you have plans to hurt yourself or someone else um there is an agreement there with a therapist that They might have to tell someone or talk about it. What is a way um, that someone could have this conversation in a comfortable space without feeling, you know, without that fear that something might come out of it that they, they weren't anticipating?
2: I would recommend that people talk to their therapist ahead of time as a hypothetical. How do they typically deal with suicidal thoughts and behaviors? What are the thresholds? In, in many states, and it can vary a little bit, but usually the legal threshold is if someone's an immediate threat of harm to themselves or others, and um, th- then they may there, there might be some further action and involuntary hospitalization or something like that. But often at different levels, so if someone has other plans, but they're kind of further out or they have some protective factors or they can plan to keep themselves safe, there it doesn't lead to that, but everyone I encourage to ask the therapist ahead of time, look at their website, and just kind of understand what is their approach to suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And that way you can be informed before you even open that conversation up.
0: That's great to know because I think when you hear such broad language like that, it can be kind of um you're just confused on where to go from that. So I appreciate um you giving kind of the script of how to talk to your therapist about that or open the conversation. Um, and going back to what Cassie asked about the origin of uh, suicidal thoughts or where it might be uh, stemming from, in your book, you mentioned the pain of feeling like a burden, that that's an often, or that's a common feeling um, with people experiencing suicidal thoughts. So what is the connection to experiencing su- suicidal thoughts and feeling like a burden in people's lives?
2: Some of that originally came from some research done by Thomas Joyner and some colleagues where they were looking actually at suicide notes and trying to understand some of the content. And one of the themes that they found was this idea that the person is in so much pain that they feel that they're also bringing other people down, that they're actually a liability to other people and that other people would thrive if not, if they didn't have to worry about them. Now, this is very sad and painful and people around them, do not view the person this way, right? They view contributions and love and connection and all of those things. But it's very sad The person struggling with the suicidal thoughts often doesn't see that. And that can even drive some of the suicidal thoughts, because if you feel so awful, have so much self-hatred and kind of believe that you're hurting your loved ones, because you're not a worthy person, then it kind of makes sense that within that mindset they might start to think maybe it's better if i leave and and if or if i die and and leave these people alone so that's where that connection can really be there and can be super painful for people going through it
1: yeah and speaking of you know family members and friends so for concerned uh family members and friends what are some warning signs they might be able to look out for if they're worried about their loved one and you know what 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 should they do in that situation if they're seeing these warning signs
2: Some of the warning signs can be clearer than others. So if someone certainly is talking about suicide and you want to take that seriously or or their own death or feeling hopeless, then then you want to definitely ask about it. What does that feel like for you? And the the key, I think, is to really try to listen non-judgmentally. And that's hard to do because it is hard to hear someone you care about talk about wanting to die. It's really hard. But if you can listen non-judgmentally and try to understand them, that can often point the pathway to how you can best help. And it also sends a message that it's okay for them to be honest with you, that you're going to be there with them. Other signs that might not be as direct as that is if you see someone withdrawing, they're just not doing the things they used to do. They're not hanging out anymore. They seem kind of disengaged. Social isolation could be a warning sign, um, agitation or recklessness, where the person just doesn't seem like they're acting like themselves. And sometimes they're, it's very hard to see any signs because sometimes people keep them private. But certainly if you notice a change in the person's behavior or mood or their mindset, then I think it's helpful to just ask directly, how are you doing? And are you having thoughts about suicide? I'm, I'm worried about you. Even if they say no, they know that you've opened it up and that it's something that's speakable, that it's something that they can talk about at some point, that you care about them and that you're you're willing to listen and be there. And it's not something that they need to avoid sharing with you.
0: And as that person, Katie, that if someone is opening up to you, you're, you're their trusted person that they've um, wanted to share uh, suicidal thoughts with or that they're really struggling What kind of tools can that person be equipped with? And furthermore, when do you know when it's right to um, enlist further help or to seek that out? Like, what's the line there um, as a safety person?
2: It's a great question in terms of how you can be equipped to respond in a compassionate way. And I think that one of the keys is to really just learn more about where suicidal thoughts come from, that the person, it's not that they necessarily, they want to be dead or hurt themselves like we were talking about before, but that they're in a, in a state of great distress and pain and are having a hard time believing there's some other way to get some relief from it. I think understanding that can help you to be compassionate and not everyone's had suicidal thoughts. So you don't have to go through it firsthand to, 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 read about people who've experienced it. And I think with the internet and social media, it's easier than ever to kind of find firsthand accounts of people describing what it felt like, and that can help you to build up some compassion. Another thing is just to have the openness to hear from your particular loved one, what took them to that point, what it's like for them. Even asking those questions can be very validating and clarifying and helpful. And if the person says, I really, I don't know how to describe it, or I can't talk about it, just being there with them can, can be some a way to be supportive. And so in terms of safety and when you would contact another person, it's hard because there are a lot of different individual factors and, and situations. One of the big pieces of suicide prevention that is supported by research is that if people are in crisis and they're thinking about suicide, it is very helpful to take away lethal means and ask them to have someone else hold them. Meaning if they have a gun, can it be stored in a safer way? Can they put the bullet separate from the gun? Can they put a lock on it? Can they put it in a safe? Can someone else store it for a while until they're at lower risk? Um, if there's a risk of overdose, can someone someone else hold the pills Those types of things can be really helpful in preventing suicide. So a lot of this can be a collaborative and should be a kind of collaborative discussion and trying to ask the person to let them guide what's most helpful to them. If you find yourself in a situation, for example, you're not with the person and they've told you they've just hurt themselves or or if they've done something to themselves, then that, that is a situation where I would, I would want to call an ambulance to make sure that, that they get the medical help that they need. And so situations like that, it's, it's kind of where you would need to pull some other people, but Before getting to that, if they haven't already done something to hurt themselves, sometimes they're willing to bring in friends or family members or someone who will stay with them or have more frequent contact with the professional. So it really depends on the individual situation. I really
1: appreciate all those strategies for the the person helping and, and, you know, hopefully more people can find their safety person and be able to have those open conversations and, you know, minimize the risk that they have in their own homes, for example. Um, I wanted to ask... For the person struggling with the suicidal thoughts, what are some, some coping mechanisms or easy ways for them to, to start to reduce that emotional pain when they're feeling triggered or, or very upset and thinking very, uh, you know, dark thoughts?
2: Some of the things that have been helpful, found to be helpful through research for people when they're in kind of an acute place of suicidal crisis is to find things that can distract from the deep emotional pain. Now, I, I think it's important here to mention that we're talking about in those acute moments. So it's important to also understand the pain and dig into that. But in those moments that are kind of high risk, you're looking to soothe that intensity. And so things that tend to be helpful are strategies that capture the attention of the person that influence you positively in in a physical way. And that can be things like talking to another supportive person that can lift your mood. It can be other things like playing a game or watching a movie, taking a hot shower, going for a brisk walk, um, putting cold water on your face. It kind of depends for each person what that is doing a relaxation exercise, whatever it might be. And so, In the book, what I encourage people to do is to look at some different things and try them out at times when they're not in acute crisis to see what actually soothes them and relieves some of that pain so that they have a a go-to list in times of crisis to turn to. And if one doesn't work, you can go to the next one. But the idea is that you can find something positive that helps to soothe that pain in that moment because that's really important. Safety is important, and it's also important to help that pain that's driving the suicidal thoughts in the first place.
0: I, as simple as it sounds like by just splashing water in your face, that is such a powerful way to bring awareness back into the body. And um, I think that that's really powerful to have strategies like that in your toolkit. Like you're saying, when you're not activated or in that crisis, but to go back to, to kind of bring you back to the moment and um, kind of remind yourself that you're grounded and, and planted. Um, And and going in line with talking about some of the coping strategies in your book, you talk about a hope acronym, and I was hoping that you could explain that, um, expand on it, and also how when we're dealing with this hope acronym as a uh, coping strategy, how we can use that to create like those sparks of light or um, build hope without it being in that shallow, superficial way, but but really effective for coping.
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think that. Hope is something, if it's going to be really meaningful to people, has to come from something that they connect with, relate to, and resonate to. Hope, I don't, in, in my practice and in my life, I have not seen that just saying a positive phrase or affirmation. For some people that helps, but for people who are really struggling, that's that's often not enough. And so the purpose of the acronym is to dig deeper and really search for that hope that's there, but that is actually really hard to see when you're struggling with suicidal thoughts because it kind of creates this tunnel vision and blocks out a lot of those things. So the acronym, the H is for seeking help. And often in a suicidal mind state, it can be hard to even think about where you might ask for help. And so it lays out specific things, for example, that are driving the pain. So if you're having trouble paying rent, if you are experiencing discrimination at work. If you are worried about food security, uh, physical illness, whatever it might be, it might, if you don't have the resources to do that immediately at hand, might feel hopeless. And so the seek help idea is to kind of try to identify, are there community resources that can help me figure this out, that can lend aid? And so concrete things that can actually help me deal with the issue at hand. Um, sometimes it's about depression. You can't pinpoint exactly what the stressor is or some kind of other mental health problem. And that seeking help can be talking to a clergy member, a relative, just someone, a confidant who, who can help you to see a bright side of something that maybe you're missing. The O is about finding optimism. And the key there is that it's not this empty optimism of just think positive or something like that. It is about looking and saying, okay, are there past struggles I've had that I really didn't think I was going to get through? How did I get through them? What were the resources, the strengths that I had and that other people had that got me through that? And when you look at those things, that can build optimism and and confidence that you might get through this too, because that hard thing in the past, you didn't think you were going to get through. Um, That's one way to find optimism. Another is to just identify clear points in time where things might feel better. So maybe there's an upcoming trip or a birthday party, or you really like the fall when the leaves change color, whatever it might be, an idea is just that there can be these small things that, that lift you up and give you hope to feel better in the future. The P is about changing perspective and that's where the cognitive behavioral therapy approach in the book is really underlying that. And when people feel hopeless, briefly, they tend to blame themselves. They tend to think that they're awful as people. Like if they've made one mistake, it's a global problem about them. And they tend to feel that it's stable. It's never going to change. And so changing perspective is about challenging that. Are there some external factors contributing to the problem that you're not focusing on because your brain is automatically going and blaming yourself? Are there aspects of you that you're missing because brain is kind of focusing on just these flaws that, that we all have. And also, is there reason to believe that things could get better? Are there things you could do so that things could get better? And so, you know, people sometimes are in very hard, difficult situations, and this is difficult to piece through. But often what I find is a tendency of these automatic thoughts coming to people's minds where they just are so cruel to themselves and blaming themselves. And so even If you can shift that a little bit, sometimes some hope. Well, if it's not all my fault and this is changeable and I'm not horrible all over as a person, then maybe things could be better in the future. The E is about attending to emotions. And so that's about validating how you feel and saying, what do I need right now? Is it that I'm feeling lonely? Am I feeling in a position where I'm being treated unfairly? Am I? not, you know, whatever it is, and how, how can I address that? Can I communicate my needs to someone? Can I be with people if I feel lonely? If I feel sad, is there something I can do to lift myself up? And so that's part of the attending to emotions aspect of it.
1: So going along with the HOPE acronym, um, you talk about creating a HOPE kit in your book. Can you talk about what that is and, and how those skills from the HOPE acronym might play into creating
2: your own HOPE kit? definitely the hope kit comes from often used with cognitive behavioral therapy interventions and the idea is kind of like we were talking about is that when when someone's in a suicidal crisis it's hard to think about hope because your brain is kind of focusing on on hopelessness and reasons to not have hope and so the idea is to create a hope kit that reminds you of the reasons for hope and that soothes pain that you can access in those times because you've created it in a time where you're not in that headspace and then you can access it so things that people include in there might be their loved ones their reasons for living they might have a picture of their family members they might include pictures of good memories of times that they felt happy with the idea that they could feel happy again in the future might include song lyrics or funny memes that lift their spirits or cute animal pictures it Whatever it is, the whole purpose is to soothe pain and to have these reminders of hope and make them more salient and like shine the spotlight on them in those moments that they tend to fade into the background. And it can be virtual. There are apps, free apps for hope kits that you can create on your phone and store pictures and songs or people can have physical boxes with things in them that they look at.
0: So as we're talking about coping skills and things related to the HOPE kit and HOPE acronym, in your book, you talk about emotional uplifts. And I'm sure that this is going to align with where we're going um, with some of these strategies. But could you give a few examples of what emotional uplifts would look like and how someone um, could put that into their, their coping strategies?
2: Sure. There's kind of this idea in cognitive behavioral therapy that thoughts, behaviors, and emotions all influence each other. And so often there's a lot of focus on if you change your thoughts in a situation, then your behaviors and emotions might change. So for example, if you are thinking it's all my fault, then the emotion is probably shame. But if you think, you know, I take responsibility for some things, but some of my pain is due to external factors, That shame would likely decrease and hope would increase. So, what the emotional uplifts do is they target the emotions directly because, according to the cognitive behavioral model, you can intervene at the thoughts, emotions, or behaviors, and that should change because they all influence each other. And so, for emotional uplifts, the idea is that maybe you're not in a place to really analyze your thoughts and look at the evidence for and against it, but you can just do something that feels good and that can be enough. To lift you up and help you to think about things differently or behave differently. So some of the examples that I have are going to a bookstore and looking at magazines. Sometimes just being around people, even if you're not talking to them, can can help. Calling a friend, um, putting something on your to-do list and then checking it off. Listening to a song you love, watching a funny movie or stand-up comedy, going to see live music, reading through old cards that friends have given to you. Um, kind of paint your nails eat some food from your favorite restaurant do a craft um, some kind of sport all of those things can be uplifts and so what i like to do is i have a long list in the book and have people come up with some of their own because the idea is that different things work for different people but we all have those things and so it can be helpful just to have a, a list to choose from and to try those out and if one thing doesn't work well i can try this instead
1: yeah, and a few of those emotional uplift examples you mentioned involved, you know, friends and relationships. Um I wonder or rather, I really enjoyed that you talked about strengthening relationships as um a method to help with the suicidal thoughts. Can you talk about some ways that someone might, you know, reach out to strengthen their relationship and and what are some also some obstacles that might get in the way of
2: this? One of the big obstacles that can occur is because as we talked about before, when someone is feeling suicidal, they might feel like a burden or they might not feel up to socializing. And so it's it's actually, it's really sad because then it makes it really hard to do the things that would probably help the most, which is to getting more getting more connected with people. So in the book, I really try to break down step-by-step, step what are some little things that you might do? And often this can help by looking at existing relationships And most people have someone that maybe it's a friend who they got along with, but maybe they've drifted away from, they haven't texted them in a while, they haven't called them. Maybe making plans with that person or even a plan to catch up might feel more comfortable versus going to meet a new friend. So kind of building on what's already there. Maybe there's a coworker you like and you decide to, you ask them if they wanna get coffee together or if you just during your break, chat with them a little bit. They don't have to be huge things. They can be small things that can really help people to feel more connected. So there are some of those building on existing relationships and kind of looking at those, where could I strengthen those? And then there's another section about, for people who don't, just don't feel connected to others, how might they approach that? Can they find a meetup group or an online group where they just, take these small steps to start connecting with people. And another obstacle that can get in the way there is some people are really shy or struggle with social anxiety, or maybe they're out of practice because during the pandemic, they weren't around people as much. And so we just talk about taking steps, not getting overwhelmed by have to go straight to a party and see a bunch of people. But maybe what I can do is I can attend a public talk about something I'm interested in. And then I'll be around other people, but there's no pressure. And then you can kind of work your way up from there.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask about the pandemic um, and how you've seen that, you know, affect maybe your clients and practice and, and especially with those strengthening relationships, because, you know, even people who are not struggling with suicidal thoughts are maybe having trouble connecting and strengthening their relationships after two years of isolation. Um, so I wonder if you've seen anything change for, for your clients or, you know, people you know about that.
2: One of the things that's kind of interesting is I I think from knowing people in other regions of the country, there's such variability. And in North Dakota, there's been, where I live in practice, there's been a lot less of the shutdowns or lockdowns or restrictions. They've certainly been there at different times in the pandemic, but it's been a lot less. So there are many people who. Continue to socialize through. However, there have also been strains on relationships about different people's different approaches to safety during the pandemic. And so, one area that I've seen this happen with is people who have newborn babies, for example, and are at risk for postpartum depression because they're not as comfortable having the support and relationships that they would normally have because maybe they have different views on vaccination or masks or whatever it might be. And then There ends up being more conflict than they had. And so that's definitely been an issue. And then for people who are more cautious, even when restaurants are open, they don't want to go because they're afraid of that. So they might end up, um, you know, really missing people because some of their friends are still going out and comfortable with that, but they're the one who's staying behind. The other thing that I've seen is that when people go to work or something, there are small interactions that they're used to having and seeing other people that they didn't really think about. But then during the pandemic, if they're working more from home or just staying in their office more, they're missing some of those little interactions. And then some people are feeling out of practice with that small talk and stuff like that. So I've really seen a wide range of people who have kind of continued to socialize almost as they did before and people who have felt conflict with people who have different risk tolerance levels. And then people who were pretty isolated are trying to figure out what's the balance and how do I get back into practice? So it, it's certainly added stress to so many people's lives. And I think that is why the data suggests that suicidal thoughts have increased over during the pandemic. Isolation is part of that.
0: And I was going to ask that if the suicidal thoughts had increased during the pandemic, you know, with the isolation and, um, feelings of loneliness. And, um, aside from the pandemic, kind of going back to talking about some of the coping strategies, um, for strengthening relationships and reaching out to get coffee and things like that. Um, I found it really interesting, uh, the idea of just going and being in public, like going to a public talk, just as like a reminder that life is happening around you. I've found myself doing that post pandemic in general, just going somewhere and like feeling the energy of things going on. I think, um, being at home all the time makes it seem like a lot could be going on or nothing, um, but you wouldn't know firsthand. So I really appreciated that, that tip for going out and kind of like baby stepping back into a social scene. Um, but as we talk about some of these coping strategies, kind of going back to the HOPE acro- acronym, or at least the H uh, part for help, in your book, you talk about a help-seeking plan. Um, could you explain what that would look like and how someone could go about creating one?
2: sure i I think that um, the main part of it is to I think as a therapist, one thing that I've noticed is when people come in and talk to me and they're feeling hopeless and feeling like there's no help out there, they might not be aware that there are some great organizations in most local areas and also national organizations that are designed to help people that are struggling with whatever specific issue it is, whether it's housing or medical bills or whatever great many stressors there might be, or if people are in an abusive relationship and they're not sure how to deal with it. And so part of the help seeking plan is getting very specific about the person or organization who they might contact that can help them think through it, listing the phone number and planning when they're going to call or email or whatever they're going to do. And the reason for this is that you can feel kind of stuck and like, you know, I want help, but I'm not really sure what to do, but by writing it out, it can start to seem less overwhelming and more practical and more likely that you're going to follow through with it. And so the help plan is really about naming the person or the organization, how to contact them when you will, and what help you'll ask for, because it's different depending on what the person needs. If you're feeling stuck and there's someone that you can ask for help, so often um, there are, for example, 1-800-273-TALK is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. There are often local hotlines, too, that can help you just to connect with resources or get referrals. And I think that's really important because it's not all about mindset, try to think of it differently or this or that. It's It's also about trying to solve the problems that the person is facing and getting relief and hope from that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. Um, Briefly, you talked about the reasons for living inventory. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about what that is.
2: Absolutely. So that was developed by Marsha Linehan and her colleagues. And what they did is they asked a lot of people what their reasons for not dying by suicide were and what their reasons for wanting to stay alive were. And what I like about it is because it comes from people who are struggling and who are identifying different reasons. And there's nothing that's, they don't have to be what most people would think. So many people say their children or their partner or their family, they don't want to hurt their parents or whatever it might be. And that's in there. But there are other reasons people put in there too, that they, that they have, um, fear about what it means that the pain is concerning to them. So highlighting what are all your reasons for living? Because when you're feeling suicidal, often the focus is on the reasons for dying and that's your brain kind of goes to, okay, well, maybe you would feel some relief from this pain. Maybe people wouldn't have to worry about you anymore. This is kind of saying, okay, we acknowledge that those exist and that's important for us to recognize but let's also look at the other side, which is true, which is what are your specific reasons for living? Is it maybe they have a spiritual connection? Maybe they have something they want to accomplish. Maybe they just want to see how things turn out. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter how big or small it is. It's just important to highlight that. And again, kind of correct for the tunnel vision that can happen for people.
0: I really like the idea of the reasons for living inventory. I think that's such a powerful exercise to work through. And and like you're saying, while it might not seem like at first there's a lot um, to write when you have that tunnel vision, it does force your brain to kind of go into that place um, to to think of things. And I just, when I read that in your book, I thought that was a really um, powerful exercise for someone experiencing emotions um, such as that. And I wanted to ask, this is a little bit, Um, unrelated to coping strategies, but more in just kind of the maintenance of mental health um, when you're experiencing suicidal thoughts. What is your opinion on consuming content? Um, I know that from the news to things that we see on TV, it can be pretty dark. And um, even before you came on, Cassie and I were talking about the way um, suicide is often depicted in television. We're seeing more of it, um, which of course brings awareness, but can also be very triggering to people. And I just wanted to get your opinion on what you thought about that when someone is experiencing those those thoughts and those feelings where Where should they be um in their content consumption and what would be the best route there?
2: I think that there's no simple rule that applies universally I think it's it's very individual and so part, one of the exercises in the attend to emotions aspect of the hope acronym is actually about tracking emotions. And it could be, you know, you're just paying attention to every half hour or every hour, just where are you feeling or how are you feeling? Where's your level of pain at? And if you're noticing, okay, I have this huge dip in mood in the evening and it's after I've scrolled through all of this news, then I think it's worth thinking about setting a boundary around that I think that sometimes it can feel like you're ignoring important world information or something like that. I, I'm certainly not encouraging you to do that. I think that part of what can help people is feeling connected to the larger world or keeping things in perspective by looking at the larger world. However, if something's making you feel more suicidal, it's not helping anyone else who's suffering or struggling. It doesn't mean that you're selfish or avoidant or anything like that it's important to take care of yourself and so if that means setting limits and paying attention to how you feel then i think it's important to have some compassion in those moments for yourself and recognize that without maintaining your mental health you really you can't be of great help to other people you can't be of great help to yourself and so what i really suggest is just noticing what are those factors that bump my mood up or down and are there ways to put it around it doesn't mean never watch the news or read the news ever but maybe i just I'm going to spend 30 minutes a day or whatever it might be for the individual person.
1: I think that's so important and being aware of your own mental health. Um, So I think this, you know, might give us a good uh, note to wrap up on, but why is it important to continually care for your mental health? Even after you're out of this activated phase, maybe you're managing your suicidal thoughts better. Why is it important to have a continued mental health plan going forward after that?
2: I think understandably with suicide, often we focus on the crisis at hand, saving someone's life when they're in acute crisis. And that's extremely, extremely important. What's also important is paying attention to the factors that are way before that develops or maybe after it develops, but prevent it from escalating to a crisis. And what that means is, is trying to lead a life or live a life that feels good to live. And, It's not easy to do that, especially for people who have struggled with different mental health problems and struggled with suicidal thoughts. It takes an active effort. You don't have to 100% all the time, always do things that are perfect for your mental health. That's just not possible. However, if you let it fly off the radar or slip in priorities, which is easy to do because depending on your workplace or environment, you may not have the support encouraging to look at your mental health. But if you don't do that, then you can find yourself in crisis and really low again before you even know it. And so that's why it's really important to think about what are the things, how can I continue to do things that I value, that feel good to me, that lift my mood, that help my physical health and well being, that keep me connected to other people, and kind of thinking that as a longer term quality of life plan versus just thinking about how do I keep myself from dying by suicide, but how do I actually create a life that I, I really wanna live? And, and what can I personally do to influence that and pay attention to it? And also just knowing that you're, you're worthy of that time, effort, priority, and healing. I think that can be hard, too. I think that's part of why mental health can shift to low priority, because it can feel like other demands are more important.
0: I really um, find value in looking at it from not just when you're in crisis, but planning for the long term. And. Obviously, that really helps when someone is experiencing suicidal thoughts and it, it gives them a plan and, and longevity and keeps things moving, which um of course is so huge when you're experiencing those thoughts and um so i i I really appreciated that outlook on it um as we wrap up, Katie, do you have any thoughts for our listeners or anything that you'd like to add to the conversation
2: i I just want anyone who who's listening who struggled with suicidal thoughts or had a loved one who struggled with suicidal thoughts to know that it's not your fault that this is happening. It's not something to feel ashamed of. You're not alone. A lot of people struggle with these thoughts and struggle with the pain related to them. And that there are effective ways to cope with that pain and to get to a place where life feels better. And there are ways to get there through the help of others and through some things that you can also do on your own. To feel better, and I, I think that that hope is really important to hold on to, even though it can be really hard at times.
1: Well, thank you so much, Katie. This is such an important conversation, and thank you so much for the work you do. It's important to keep talking about it, to keep destigmatizing it, and so we're really grateful to have chatted with you today. Definitely.
2: Thank you for for these really interesting and insightful questions, and thank you for this conversation. I appreciate it.
0: If you or someone you love is dealing with a crisis right now, please call 1-800-273-8255 to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline.
1: A Compassionate Guide to Managing Suicidal Thoughts and Finding Hope. If you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, please know that you are not alone and that you are worthy of help. Your life and well-being matter. When you're suffering, life's challenges can feel overwhelming and even insurmountable. This workbook is here to help you find relief and solutions when suicidal thoughts take over. Grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy, this compassionate workbook offers practical tools to guide you toward a place of hope. It will help you identify your reasons for living, manage intense emotions and painful thoughts, and create a safe environment when you're in crisis. You'll also find ways to strengthen social connections, foster self-compassion, and rediscover activities that bring you joy and meaning to your life. This workbook is here to support you. However you're feeling at this moment, remember the following. You are worth it, you are loved, and you matter. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25
0: to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For nearly 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. If you enjoyed today's
1: episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show. And we hope that you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider.
0: Join the New Harbinger Clinicians Club, a free membership club exclusively for mental health professionals. Sign up today and you'll receive a special welcome gift, 35% off all professional books, Free client resources, free ebooks throughout the year, access to private sales, a subscription to our Quick Tips for Therapists email program, and more. Visit newharbinger. dot com slash clinicians dash club for more information.